thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Nobody cared what we were doing. So we were out dropping heavyweight <laughs> bombs. We were dropping live bombs every day. It was just, you know, we were doing 4v4 with all the, you know, the red flag stuff. Your red air. I mean, there, the flying was phenomenal. After five years of the same old audio-only format, we here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast are mixing it up as we enter into our sixth year. That's right, we're going video. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and we're going video largely thanks to two people I want to introduce. One is Mr. Kevin Harold, who's hiding behind the cameras, and the other is across the desk from me, and that's D. Conger, call sign Bones. Hello, Bones, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, I'm giving you credit because we have a partnership with this studio I'm in, which is part of a hangar that you own as a fixed base operations circle air group. Thanks. Yeah, no, it worked out great. I mean, we always look to get, you know, people are of the same fold as us, and it's great to have kind of the ethos of the whole Fighter Pilot uh, podcast be part of our organization. So Thanks. We're uh, blessed to have you guys here. Oh, cool. Well, we like being here. You've got some other great tenants, and we'll talk a little bit more maybe at yeah. the end about the Circle Air Group sure. and uh, where you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, but first, let's start with you. As I understand, uh, after college, and you could tell us where you went, but you didn't yeah. go straight into the Air Force, did you? No, no. I graduated with a math degree, and I ended up working for, of all things, an accounting firm, um, which was a job that I hated. And so this was in, uh, you know, I graduated, w- moved down to Newport Beach and worked for Touche Ross uh, before it merged with Deloitte Haskins and Sells as kind of an actuary, really. But I really, all I did was math. And, you know, kind of a long story short, um, it was kind of the worst job I've ever had. And, uh, and, and at the time, I, you know, was kind of an avid flyer, but really no inklings of being in the military at all. I mean, where I grew up, Southern California, the military was just not a thing that was in my you know, checklist of things to consider. Uh-huh. And, um, but one day I was, and, and this really is how much thought went into it. I was sitting at John Wayne airport with my in and out burger thinking about how much my life fucking sucked. And I was watching the airplanes fly around and I looked across the way and I saw the recruiting office. So there was a recruiting office for the Navy Marine Corps air force, you know, uh, right across from John Wayne airport. And literally I'm like, screw it. I'm quitting this job and I'm going to go fly jets. Um, and so I walked into the Navy recruiter first and he says, um, you know, basically they were very, very anxious to get me signed up. Uh, walked in in a suit. What year was this? This was in 1985. Okay. So before the Top Gun rush. Before Top Gun. In fact, you know, Uh I was in pilot training when Top Gun came out, so it was good to be me. Oh yeah. And, um, (laughs) So I walked into the recruiter. The Navy guy was very anxious to get me signed up. And he's like, you need to sign on the dine, sign on the line that is dotted uh, now, and I can have you in pilot training in a, in a few months. 
And I'm like, okay, you're a little too anxious mm-hmm. uh, to get me signed up. And 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 trust me, I I knew nothing about the military or the differences between the services or anything. So I walked to the Marine recruiter next door, and he says, "You got to go to infantry school for six months and carry a rifle." And I'm like, "No, <laughs> next game changer." <laughs> I walked to the Air Force recruiter, and the Air Force guy. Made me sit there for 30 minutes while he was talking on the phone to his girlfriend. <laughs> and like I, you know, like he didn't really even care. And, uh-huh. I, and from right there, I'm like, this must be the best deal because they don't really care if you're here or not. Um, so anyway, I finally talked to him. He's like, there's no slots to go through OCS in the Air Force. He's like, you might try the Navy or the Marine Corps because they have more people to go through OCS in the Air Force at the time. Because remember, this was at the end of the Reagan drawdown. Right. So there was not a lot of slots to go through OCS in the Air Force. Um, but it just so happened at the time I was working in my accounting job for this country company called Rogerson Aircraft, and uh, they made Hiller helicopters, and they made Kratos instruments, and some other stuff, but this guy, Michael Rogerson, owned that company. All the top managers in that company were ex-fighter pilots, and you know, not that they were good business people, because most of them were shitty business people, <laughs> but they were really interesting dudes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there was an old guy there who was a one-star retired Air Force fighter pilot, and um, so I kind of sheepishly locked, knocked on his door, and he's like, what do you want? And, you know, <laughs> I'm like, listen, I'm not here to part of the audit, you know? Um, so uh, I closed the door, and I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about flying jets. Shuts the door. He pulls out a thing of whiskey, pours me a shot, <laughs> and says... I got to tell you, it's the greatest thing known to man, and I'd be so happy to help you uh, experience that joy. And um, he really, I mean, he wrote me this letter of recommendation, having met me five minutes earlier, that made me sound, you know, made me sound like I was Jesus Christ. I mean, he wrote me this letter like he'd known me his entire life. And he starts calling people at, you know, the training command uh, or the military personnel command to try to find a way to weasel me in from all his connections from all his military time. So based on that one guy, I got accepted to Air Force OCS. Nice. All right. Hold on. Let's back up. Where did you go to college? Uh, I went to BYU. Okay. And that's right. another whole no, long sure. story. And uh, so I was an applied math major. What was your specialty or was it just, uh, bas- just basic math? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we have something in common. Yeah. There. Good. All right. So you end up off to Air Force pilot training. You can right. tell us as much about that. That's interesting as you think. But what I really want to get to is yeah. you end up in the F-4 Phantom. Right. Because we had on this show two parts of an F-4 episode, but it was both with Navy guys. Yes. So I don't know if you caught that episode, um, but we did talk a little about the different uh, jets there. Air Force right. jets, that is. So, I don't know. Let's pick up the story. Yeah, sure. You think it's so, important. I went to Vance uh, by the sea, which is in Enid, Oklahoma, and I, literally probably the shittiest of all pilot training bases, but uh, just because of its location, which is, I mean, the closest civilization is Stillwater, Oklahoma, so you get to know Eskimo Joes, which was nice, um, and the co-eds in Oklahoma, and you learn to line dance with the cowboys. But other than that, Vance was truly a shithole, uh, but it was a great place to go through pilot training because you were so isolated from everyone, you know, and you really started to get that first taste of the camaraderie of your classmates and your fellow pilots, um, but the competition was... Gnarly, right? My, my pilot training class, which is somewhat typical in the Air Force, is that we started with 40 and graduated 19. And um, so, you know, uh, on assignment night, and the way it worked at the, in the Air Force at the time, uh, is that you, you fill out your dream sheet of what you want to fly. And I don't even think I had an F-4 on that because the Air Force 
had stopped giving F4s to lieutenants like years before me because it was going away. You know, the F4 was going away in the Air Force for 20 years, right? It was going to be replaced. And, but they just kept, uh, you know, it kept living. And um, so it turns out that uh, there was one final class to the F4, and I was the last lieutenant in the Air Force trained in the E in the E model F4. So I flew the F4E, which was the one with the gun in the nose. It wasn't neutered like all the Navy planes, and I didn't fly the Wild Weasel, which was the F4G uh, that really kind of became famous during the first Gulf War. I flew the standard, you know, uh, dual role uh, fighter bomber, mostly okay. bomber. And F4. probably not. Did Air Force have an RF version? They did. Okay. And you, the, did you fly that? No, no, no. The, okay. the recce's that's kind of really not a fighter, you know. <laughs> but uh, my, I had some really good friends that did. And they weren't, again, they, they weren't sending people the recce. I, I'm trying to think if there were any, I don't think there were any active duty RF4s when I went to the F4E. They were in the guard, like Reno and okay. a few others flew it. But there was, at the time when I went to the F4, there was three squadrons flying the F4. There was Seymour Johnson, uh, and then there was Victorville, George Air Force Base, and then Clark in the Philippines. Philippines. So, um, so anyway, so when we sobered up after assignment night and <laughs> I, I mean, truly it's like what happened to, there was a guy, uh, named, uh, Minkle, I'm trying to remember his last name, but he was an F4 guy and he was, then it was a, a Thunderbird and the F-16 and he was kind of like my mentor. I flew all my last four ship, uh, formation and pilot training with this guy. And he's the one who I think really called up and, and said, you know, got me the F4. Uh, because I wasn't going to get, I really, really, really wanted to fly the Eagle, you know, the F-15, like everybody else. And there were no Eagles available. Um, and so after uh, assignment night, when I sat down with this guy, he explained to me, he goes, listen, you know, uh, I could have sent you to the F-16, but I know your heart was set on flying the F-15. And so if you go to fly the F-4, you're going to fly it for a year, and then they're all going to go away, and then you're going to go fly the F-16, but you have like a 5% chance of going to fly the Eagle. I'm like, so he's saying I have a chance. That's right. And uh, so that was his strategy. He's like, listen, you're going to go fly with all the old guys from Vietnam, which was the case. Um, you're going to have a great time flying one of the greatest fighters of all time. Um, and then it's going to be a short-lived thing, and you will you know, phase out of that into a more modern jet. Most likely the F-16, because that's where everybody went in the Air Force. But there's a chance you could fly you know, what, what you really want. Um, so anyway, so, uh, I, I got my assignment, uh, you know, showed up at, uh, you know, you have to go to, in the air force, you go to, uh, at the time you went to Holloman to go through what they call fighter lead in, which I gotta tell you. And you know, your listeners, uh, that was the best time probably of my entire air force career. Yeah. It's in Holloman, New Mexico, you know, Alamogordo Mm -hmm. middle of nowhere, but, at the time, you know, everyone in the Air Force who got selected to fly fighters went to Holloman. And you went through, uh, you know, they left lead-in fighter training. And so, like, unlike the Navy, in the Air Force, we don't do any kind of BFM or basic bomb dropping air to ground. The Air Force, at the time, did none of that in pilot training. You graduated, you got your wings, and you went to Holloman. And Holloman was the, run by the mafia of the Tactical Air Command, so it was all fighter pilots. And, and truthfully, you showed up to that place, and they basically said, forget everything you learned in pilot training. Now we're going to show you how to become a merchant of death and you know how to deliver munitions and how to dogfight and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
learned all the songs, learned to play dice. That's right. It was all the stuff that made you a fighter pilot, right? And Holloman, I loved. Uh, you know, I showed up I, early for my class. I got to go fly with all these, like, kind of super frustrated fighter pilots because they really wanted to be back in the command, not, you know, teaching nuggets like me. Um, but they were all, you know, for the most, I had really fond memories of all the guys I flew with at Holloman. And, you know, we would go out and do 4v4 uh, in the T-38 with no radar and nothing. And it was just all you see is these gray streaks <laughs> going around. And as a young lieutenant, you have zero clue what's going yeah. on. Um, but anyway, Holloman was epic. And then uh, I went, I showed up at George. And George at the time was, um, I, I got to say, this, it was a weird squadron because it was like 25 majors, two lieutenant colonels. And, you know, a handful of captains. There's no lieutenants because there had been nobody trained, you know, in the Phantom for years. And then it turned out there was me and two other guys that were in this last class, two other lieutenants, you know, kind of the last of the last. And uh, we showed up into this class. And, you know, uh, the other really interesting piece of Air Force lore, uh, lore at the time was that, you know, back in the day in the Air Force, the the fighter pilots they would they would wear uh, they had stars on their sleeves. I don't know if you remember this, but in the old school, like the Vietnam era, you you know that only the fighter pilots would do this, but they would have embroidered stars on their sleeves, and you got a silver star for every five hundred hours of fighter time, and then if you had combat time, you got gold stars, and so for the first hour of combat time, you got your first gold star, and you, you know so. As a young lieutenant, you walk into the squadron, and of course, you know, as a, you know, as a lieutenant, you have nothing. Right. And you have nothing for a long time, right? Because <laughs> 500 hours of fighter time takes you a long time in any branch to get. And you would have these guys with, like, 10 stars on their sleeves, and, you, you know, everyone walking around had 5,000, 3,000 fighter hours, and, you know, three gold stars. These are all Vietnam guys or, or flew all over. So everyone there was, like, you know, old, crusty, cigar-smoking, whiskey-drinking, you know, <laughs> traditional fighter pilot. And, and me, as a long lieutenant, yeah. I, I ate it up. I mean, I thought all it was that. the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And all these guys I flew with were insanely great pilots i mean they could you know at, you know the the f4s at george they had no computed bombing systems in them so it was all mill reticle depression so and i i don't I know if you guys that yeah i did it in the a4 yeah in training I yeah was awful. right <laughs> so now we're doing that you know yeah. uh, like and that's what we had in the t38 at holloman was just you know a, a, a iron sight mm-hmm. but you know now you're in a frontline fighter operational and you're still dropping manual bombs i mean it was kind of nutty George Air Force Base, it should be said maybe, right, is uh, what, in the desert just north of L.A.? It's now yeah. Victorville, I guess. Victorville. Um, I've actually taken an airliner out of there. Right. And there's an F-4 on a stick. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's got some big, um, what are those great big missiles you guys used to carry? The uh, AIM-4, a- AIM-4 maybe? I don't know. You know Falcon? Oh, the you guys AIM-7. AIM-7. No, like it wasn't it. a Sparrow. At any rate. All right. So from there, though. Yeah, but, a, so, but Victorville was fantastic, was though, it? because it was, um, well, eight. you were two hours from the beach. So for right. me, like in Enid... Alamogordo, then you go to Victorville. Victorville, you're like, this is a sprawling metropolis, right? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. the greatest thing about Victorville is that you were 20-minute flight to Nellis, 
which is a center of the Air Force fighter community, yeah, right? And yeah. so when you were at Victorville, we flew in all the red flag exercises as support. And so you, you had really, I mean, and, and probably the best ranges and everything on earth is all around, you know, Panamint Valley and all the mm-hmm. 2508 stuff you guys, we all yeah, flew in it. Yeah. And so the, the ranges were great. We had supersonic ranges where you could fly supersonic. Um, it was really kind of the, the heyday of the old school. And, yeah. and again, being the end of the tail of the F-4, nobody cared what we were doing. So we were out dropping heavyweight <laughs> bombs. We were dropping live bombs every day. It was just, you know, we were doing 4v4 with all the, you know, the red flag stuff. We were red air. I mean, there, the flying was phenomenal. I bet. And um, so anyway, so I bought a house at George uh, thinking that I was going to stay there. And I was like happy as a pig and shit there. I, I thought this was like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and right after I entered uh, and contracted to buy my house in Victorville, they announced they're closing the base down. And so uh, I got out of my mortgage, and they shipped everyone left in the F-4. They shut Seymour Johnson down. Or they didn't shut it down. They converted the F-4s that were Seymour Johnson, mm-hmm. and they shut George down. And they shipped everybody left in the F-4 to Clark. In the so, Philippines. In the Philippines. So now if you think George was a great place to fly, now you're talking about the best flying place on the planet. I mean, <laughs> not just flying, but apparently everything it, between flights. Yeah, all the extracurricular <laughs> activities were, you know, of legend. Yeah. Um, but I got to say, you know, uh, this was a multi-service boondoggle because, you know, I thought that the life was great at Clark until I went down to Subic Bay and went to the officers club. I don't know if you ever made it to the officers club Never at QB Point. No. That was the most legendary thing. I I've guess heard. it's all at Pensacola now, right? They took it apart. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they moved the bar over to the museum. But QB Point was an epic place. You'd come up initial at 500 feet and 500 knot, do the shit hot break right in front of the O Club. And um, Hold on. I want to ask you about being one of only a couple lieutenants in a very top-heavy squadron. Was that bad? Like you were the coffee boy and the sandwich boy? Oh, yeah, the snacko forever. Or, were you? Okay. Oh, I yeah. thought maybe you could like hide because they weren't <laughs> used to having the junior guys. No. No, no, no. <laughs> it was like 3X the hazing because uh, there was, you know, there's, there's a... Fixed formula for hazing that every fighter pilot is allocated, you know, squadron. And when you have 10 lieutenants, you divide that, you know, X by 10. When you have three, it's, you know, by definition, mathematically three times the <laughs> amount of shit that gets nailed on you. We can, we can prove it here. We're yeah. both math majors. Yeah. Right. Okay, good. Now, so you have some other stuff in your career we want to right. talk about. And is that what you do next? Because I want to show some pictures before you do. But sure. Uh, did, you left there to go to the training we'll talk about in a minute? Yeah. Or? So, okay. um, so basically, uh, my squadron deployed to the first Gulf War right at the very end because, oh. you know, the, the thing about Clark was that uh, the F-4s we flew at Clark, while they were antiques, more or less. They were the newest F-4s ever made, and other than the ones that the Germans were flying. And um, they had a, a computer bombing system, CCIP, but the thing that was really special about the F-4s at Clark is that they uh, carried the PAVTAC pod. So we were one of, at the time, during that era, we were one of the only fighters capable of delivering LGBs. And if you remember during the first Gulf War, about halfway through it, they, the military made the decision. They're like, listen, there's way too much collateral damage. Mm-hmm. We've got to stop dropping dumb bombs. Because the F- F-16s at the time didn't have Lantern, um, or there was a small minority that did. Uh, and so you know, the backbone of the Air Force, which was the F-16, they did not have laser capability. So uh, you know, my squadron deployed based on the theory that we were going to go over and lay bombs in for everybody else. 
And, um, you know, the, the weasels that were at Clark, they deployed right at the beginning of the war, and those guys were kind of legendary of what they did. But we, uh, the E-models deployed right at the very end um, and flew very little right at the end of the war, literally before it stopped. And, um, you know, they, they did do some missions where, you know, where we were uh, buddy-lazing in for other airplanes, but generally that, you know, that was too late to the game when they made that decision. So after the first Gulf War, I, I don't know if you recall, but... The Air Force got rid of literally half of the fighters in the in its entire inventory. So 50% of all fighter jets in the Air Force went away after the first Gulf War. Which was also after the Cold War, right? So the yeah. Cold War was crumbling, or the war yeah. was, I should say. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had this little... Skirmish. Skirmish, yeah, right. And then after that, was like, oh, peace forever now, right? Yeah, right. So So all the fighters went away. um, And there was, like, if you were a a young guy in the Air Force at the time. Scary, uh, probably. It was scary because there was no cockpits for anyone to go to. And, you know, if you were a guy flying a kind of an outdated airplane, you're even worse shape because, you know, there was no transition courses available uh, for, you know, the newer fighters and everything. So um, I tried to go to uh, do it like an ALO tour, be, be like a forward air controller in Korea. Like cause it was one year. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, it was one year and it was a good deal. My my good buddy Blue, who flies here, it was, you know, there's a guy that I used to fly with here uh that was in my squadron at Clark, and he got that tour, uh, you know, and then he went right to the F-16 after that. Oh, wow. And, but I got the next best deal. I went to NJEPT uh, as an instructor pilot. Hold on. We'll get to that. Can, yeah. I, can I cut you off there? Sure. Okay, because you gave me before this some pictures right. that I want to show. And for sure. those of you maybe just listening, you want to go check out our YouTube video. Yeah. And uh, you can see these pictures. But right. uh, this first one has got the... That looks like a Vietnam era. Sure. Like when I first got to Clark, the planes were all green. um, And that was just the camo that they had because we were primarily an air-to-ground squadron. You know, we did call it 20% air-to-air, 80% air-to-ground. Now, reality, most of the old guys want to do air-to-air, so we probably did half and half. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the planes were all green. um, And you see there's an E-model F five there, yeah. yeah, in the in the background, that was from the aggressor squadron. Okay, but they shortly uh, it shut down at Clark. I mean, it was you know. Well, and we'll talk more about F fives here in yeah. a little bit. So, is this an E model Phantom? It is. Yeah. How do I know? If you look below the teeth on the front of the airplane, you can see that the gun sticking there. So the nose is longer, and it's got the gun barrels just on the front of the airplane. That's how you tell it's an E. Okay. So I was going to ask you yeah. if this was a different model, but I guess uh, you Same. said they painted them. So they this is still an E. Yeah. Okay. How fast did you ever get one otherwise? 1.8 Mach. It was 1. probably 8. the fastest I ever got, okay. went. And that was really um, a clean one. Mm-hmm. The E-model was not nearly as fast as like the Reckies that were clean. Right. I mean, those things would... Those were fast. They cut through the air a little bit better, maybe with that longer nose. A lot too, better, so. yeah. So All right. the E-model was a slow version. Yeah. Who's this young guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the, you know... War hero. The hero shot. What's in the background there? I don't actually recognize that. That's a GBU-12, so, or a GBU-10, uh, which was okay. a camera guided, like Alec had a Sony camcorder in the nose, and, really? and the backseater would steer it, uh, you know. Hmm. That was another million-dollar uh, precision bomb that um, I think this day we were going out. It was really a backseater's bomb. Uh, you know, we hit the pickle button in the front, but it was a backseater who kind of steered the bomb in, and... Uh, uh, they, you know, every backseater got to drop one because they're literally like a million dollars a piece. Oh, wow. But they needed it for their training. Yeah, but readiness. it's a 2,000 pound wow. optical guided bomb. Okay. 
Cool. Now, you talked about this earlier. So yeah. this was your squadron in right. the Philippines, yeah. the third tactical squadron? The Mighty Phantoms. Yeah, but what's this bird? Because then you've got this well, it's, sketchy-looking yeah. character. And, uh, that bird's the Peugeot, which is the legendary half uh, bird, half dragon. You know, that was the thing okay. of the third tactical fighter squadron. This was uh, back from Vietnam. This is the spook or... People call him Phileas the Phantom. Okay. And, uh, you know, so that, that, this was the mascot for the F-4 from the Vietnam days. And, uh, of course, everyone who flew the Phantom recognizes the spook. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So was this in your squadron? So is this yeah. part of the legacy? So yep. from and, Vietnam, looks like? You know, and, and it's kind of an interesting story. Um, at George, we had four or five airplanes that had kills on them from Vietnam. Uh-huh. Of course, they, they, they kept those planes alive, um, you know, because no one wants to. Either they ended up on a stick mm-hmm. or they, we were still flying them. And, and you know, the uh, interesting story is that my first flight with a navigator uh, in the back, so my really my first so- solo flight in the F-4, I flew the only F-4 in the Air Force inventory at the time that had two mid-kills on it. So, you know, talk about, like, you're a young lieutenant. I'm flying in the Mighty Phantom for the Mm -hmm. first time, and it's a mid-killer. Uh, it was really a spectacular, uh, you know, day in my if, if those gauges could talk, right? Yeah, the cockpit. right. And you're yeah. sitting in that cockpit and going, this was one that, you know, these guys in Vietnam were shooting yeah. down MiGs. Yeah. It was crazy. Nuts. All right, Gunsmoke, talk to me about that. So this was um, when, actually when I was at uh, George, when they, after they shut it down, my squadron from the Philippines deployed uh, to um, Nellis Air Force through this exercise called Gunsmoke, which was a worldwide gunnery meet. Um, and so I already had, uh, they had shut, they announced that Victory was shutting down. And um, so my, my new squadron mates from Clark kind of flew across the ocean to come compete in Gunsmoke. And this is when they showed up at Victorville uh, after, uh, and they really cleaned had up, a, looks like. Well, yeah, they cleaned up. They had, they were, and there were some, again, I, I truly believe that when you learn to deliver uh, weapons with a manual mill reticle, you have to be so disciplined, right? It's not like you can do banana passes or use a rudder or anything. You have to be so precise. And, you know, when you learn to drop bombs in an antiquated way like that, make, and then you have an automated bombing system, it's like you, it's a death dot. And truthfully, I got to tell you, Gunsmoke was more of a meat for the maintainers. Okay. Because truthfully, you know, your, your scores when you go drop bombs has more to do with the maintainers and how good they are than, uh, than it did with the airplane and the pilot for the most part. I see. Um, and it, the reason I say that is that I, w- I was a maintenance liaison officer, which is another really kind of interesting tie into what happens here at Circle Air, but um, it, which basically means is a liaison between the fighter squadron and the maintainers. But being kind of a gearhead, I, I like to hang out with the maintainers, and I would go out there and help them pull engines and do stuff like that. Nice. You know, we kept records, you know, like probably everybody did, but in the F-4 especially, we kept a, a logbook of every single weapon you deployed. And then you, uh, so every time you'd go out and drop bombs, you would come back in with the scores and then you would record it and then you'd put your notes like, okay, you know, it was, it was nine meters at 12, uh, but I pickled, I pickled late. So it probably wasn't the airplane. It's probably me. So you, you would write those comments and then they would start to, you know, dial it in. And then you had certain jets that would consistently drop left or right or whatever. And so when you went out to do it, you could have it, you could, you know, put in a correction based on the comments 
right? Mm-hmm. So in the old days, uh, we tracked everything like that, and you would compensate because, again, there was there was no computers, or if there right. was computers, it was like they probably had fucking vacuum tubes, you know? So <laughs> the computer it was, was between your ears. Yeah. So anyway, there was a lot of statistics that went into dialing in the weapon system and getting good results, and and you know it really paid off for the guys who went to Guns Gunsmoke, yeah. and right. that was just the little logo from Gunsmoke that was painted on the airplanes. Gunsmoke eighty nine third yeah. tactical yeah. fighter wing. Okay. Yeah. Now, in this picture, so this is, I assume, in the Philippines, right? Yeah, this is PN... Cope Thunder. Okay, so, where's that? Cope Thunder is, at the time, was the largest fighter deploy, uh, fighter exercise on Earth, right? It was wow. bigger than Red Flag. Okay. So this was all, most of the na- Asian nations would come to Clark, and you would flow an LFE, large force you know, exercise, mm-hmm. where you would have all the foreign uh, participants, and plus the Navy, everybody participated in, um, in Cope Thunder. And... I, I, truthfully, that was probably the best thing about being at Clark is that, you know, every few weeks you'd have 300 fighters roll into town <laughs> and you would plan this big exercise. Yeah, yeah. And so it was uh, it was a smoking good time. Oh, I bet. And you got some F-16s in your photo here. Yeah. But I guess uh, not to jump too far ahead, but you never did make it into the Eagle or the Viper. Nope. Okay. Nope. All right. Well, we'll get back to that yeah. in a second. Uh, I have no idea what that is. No. <laughs> Well, you sent me these yeah, pictures, yeah. Bones. <laughs> right. No, I mean... So let's describe it for the people driving who are just listening on yeah. the uh, MP3 podcast here. It's a, shall we say, a nice-looking uh, yeah. storefront in the Philippines right. on a dirt road. So this is the, the... Called the Brass Knob? The Brass Knob, yeah. There was like a bunch of famous bars, quote-unquote, uh-huh. um, where, you know, you would go to relax after shooting, a, uh, you know, a game we'll, of golf. We'll call it relaxing. So yeah. we got the Brass yeah. Knob and the DMZ bar? Yeah, right. Okay. By the way, I, I was thinking earlier when you talked about going to the first Gulf War, and then I wanted to ask you and I forgot, so I'm going to ask you now while it's in my head. Uh, did you end up getting a gold star for your flight suit? Uh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Air Force did away with that. Oh, they did? Yeah, because uh-huh. they thought it was not PC to have... Only the fighter pilots walking around with something mm-hmm. on their uniform. So wow. they, uh, you know, they actually eliminated that really early on in my career. Uh, that, you know, that yeah. the tanker guys and everybody else didn't like the. They fact. have feelings too. They have feelings. Yeah. Yes. Well, they do. Well, like I said earlier, I think you were there at the very end of the right. of the heyday. Yep. Um, all right. So uh, I assume you did some aerial refueling. Sure. Everybody and, did. Uh, yeah. Okay. That looks pretty good. Did you ever get up in a tanker to see it from the oh, other yeah. side? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I never had a chance. Oh, you did it? I was a tanker, but Navy style. So I just oh. run the thing out and get right. the hand signal and then yeah. uh, off you go. But all right. Did you end up with some missions, though? Yeah. In- uh-huh. When I first got to Clark, uh, there, was the, there was a big coup at Clark. And it was like in politically, like yes, and it was the only. Well, there was a coup every other week in the Philippines. <laughs> I mean, literally, there was a sign that said "Welcome to Clark Air Base," where we have enjoyed. And there was two digits days without a coup, instead of days without an injury or yeah, some it was DUI. That days without a coup. I mean, no kidding. And it, basically, they never went beyond like you know ninety nine days without a coup. And but when I first got to Clark, uh, they um, there was a coup that kicked off and. And literally, like we recalled into the squadron, and my squadron commander was on the telephone with Dan Quayle uh, because Corey Aquino, uh, they the rebels had rushed the palace in Manila, and um, they the military had lifted a couple of marines on the roof of the palace in uh, at Clark, and um, 
they were threatened because there was a lot of rebels and there was like, I don't know how many, a handful of Marines with 50 cals on the roof. Right. And Corey Aquino was screaming her head off and George Bush was at Camp David. And so he gets on the phone and uh, she, uh, or Corey Aquino gets on the phone to Dan Quayle and Dan Quayle calls my squadron commander. And he's like, you guys need to go down to Manila and fly down through the streets of Manila and let the, uh, you know, the, Gomers, the Gomers know that mm -hmm. the U.S. is involved. And so we kicked off a big, um, you know, it, it turned out to be the most like David versus Goliath type of thing where, you know, you have a ragtag group of Filipino rebels, communist rebels flying T-28s. And they actually had a handful of F-5s, but I think they crashed them all on the first night of the coup. Um, but they had a handful of T-28s, right? A radial engine, uh -huh. you know, 100 low-lead powered airplane that the rebels were flying. And the U.S. gets involved. It was, a, it was the only coup that the, is, I, I believe, it was the only coup that the U.S. ever got involved with in the Philippines. And uh, so we were doing 24-hour day air cap over top of the Philippines. They deployed in a squadron of F-15s. They had an AWACS over top of Luzon, the island of, of, you know, of the Philippines. And so you have five T-28s and a handful of guys with AKs versus two squadrons of fighters and AWACS, 24-hour air cap. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah. But it was a good time. And uh, it was really a challenge trying to figure out how we were going to shoot down a T-28 with, you know, the heat seat, the heat signature wasn't enough to be able to shoot it with a heater. And a slow target for a Slow gun. target, so we inside yeah. the speed gate, so you couldn't shoot it with a radar missile. Oh. And so uh, so we couldn't shoot it with a missile. So the only thing we were trying to do is when we, we convinced the Navy to put up a, a C-130 for us to practice on, you know, trying to do like a sweeping strafing pass. But C-130 is flying around at 130 knots. And you rotate in the F4 to 180 knots. So you got to see that, you know, it, it's like flying below 200 knots was just not a, a thing in yeah. the F4. So doing, you know, strafing passes on a C-130 flying around at 130 knots was next to impossible. So unfortunately, we never got the chance to try out our newfound strafing skills. Uh, peace prevailed? Peace prevailed pretty quickly, and that whole thing got shut down. Well, I want to ask you about this, and i got to read it because yeah. it's not familiar to me. The Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, right. which I guess still exists. Yeah. Uh, it's somewhat foreign to me. I just went the Navy way. Sure. But you went and instructed there. Yeah, so NJEP, they call it, you know, okay. was a school that was established by the Germans uh, in the 70s, I believe, in Wichita Falls, Texas. And the reason they did it is because clearly they have three VFR flying days a year in Germany. You know, it's just not a conducive place to train pilots because the weather is so bad. Um, and also, too, that I would think like the Germans and a lot of the other NATO guys, they really wanted to collaborate with their NATO allies, especially to, you know, kind of cross, get all the skills that the Americans are developing. Mm -hmm. So the Germans early on developed this program with the U.S. where they sent all of their fighter pilots from, from all the Germans went to Wichita Falls. If they were going to be a fighter pilot, they established this program called NJEPT. And the, the, the shtick of the NJEPT program was it's a, it was a regular UPT, Air Force UPT program, but it had a different syllabus. And every single person that went to NJEPT went to fly fighters. So I got my mixed feelings about the program because – I went to Vance where, you know, it had, you know, 50% plus washout rate. It was hyper competitive. Um, and everybody there, you know, was on pins and needles whether or not you're going to wash out day to day, right? <laughs> no one watches out of Egypt. 
It doesn't happen because the euro, uh, the NATO alloys, they send people over. They're not trying to wash them out. They're trying to train them and get them up to speed. And so the whole ethos of NGEPT was is that you, know, you show up to NGEPT. Well, first of all, if you got selected and, – and the program at, at NGEPT too was um, – Americans went there, too. Mostly Air Force Academy guys and Air National Guard. But the, the Guard guys who were like Guard babies and they went to fly a fighter, a lot of times they sent them to NGEPT because it truly was a pilot training program that was more oriented towards tactical aircraft as opposed to a normal UPT. But the bar, just my experience of going through Vance and then going through NGEPT, was way lower. Uh, it was NGEPT was such a less competitive program <laughs> It was a better uh, program as far as like he flew uh, four ship in the T-37 and in normal UPT, you only flew two ship in the T-37 and you flew a lot more four ship uh, rides in the T-38 and all the instructors for the most part at NGEPT were ex-fighter guys. So it was kind of like mini Holloman, um, if you will, but with uh, the bar setting pretty low uh, as far as just the, the skill set. So you have guys that graduated from NGEPT. You know, I'm, I'm saying this just from my experience being an instructor. There's, there were students that I graduated from NGEP that went on to fly the F-15 that would have washed out of normal UPT. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Do the American students that get assigned there kind of wipe their brow and say, few? I mean, is, is that like... Phew. Oh, yeah. If you get assigned to NGEPT, it's like the golden ticket. Okay. I mean, it's the, it is the ultimate, ultimate place to go uh-huh. because, you, A, you're going to graduate, and B, you're going to get a fighter. Uh-huh. It's like, holy shit. I mean, what could be possibly be better? <laughs> and it's a better program. Plus, you get a, all your classmates are Italians and Germans and yeah. Norwegians and, you know... And it's in a garden spot. It's in a garden spot of, you know, Wichita Falls, Texas. <laughs> All right, so you did that for a couple of years, yeah. flying, what, T-38s? Yeah, and then uh, got out okay. and uh, went back to business school. All right, so but you didn't just go to business school. Didn't you do, like, yeah. two things at once now? Right, so <laughs> I I um, I ended up going to Northwestern, and I did uh, – and same deal. It's like, you know, starting to – when I started gazing at my nasal, nasal about halfway through uh, – you know, NGEPT, thinking, okay, am I going to stick with it and go fly the Eagle in my dream, or am I going to hang it up, you know, abandon what I truly love, and go be an adult and make money? Yeah. Uh, truthfully, I, I think you would agree to uh, the thing about being flying, fi- being a fighter pilot and being in a fighter squadron is not so much the airplane you fly. Um, at least this is my takeaway as I've matured and become very uh, you clearly, know, clearly mature guy, <laughs> is that uh, it wasn't so much the airplane, but it was the mission 
Uh, it was the kind of the camaraderie and, you know, the competition and everything else that goes around with being with a bunch of really super type A, hard driven people. Oh, yeah. And I thrived in that environment. And I, I loved the the fighter squadron thing. And I loved being part of that fraternity. Um, and, and that's, to me, what defined being a fighter pilot. It wasn't the airplane so much. It was mm-hmm. the people. Yeah. You probably missed that ready room and the people and the mission and all that. So 100%. Where did that lead you? Well, you know, so I got out of the Air Force, and I got to tell you, I, I mean, I was depressed. Really? Um, I, I really was because, it, again, it's like you're in this, like, you know, high energy, you know, really competitive, you know, high squadron. Mm-hmm. And business school was fun. I mean, it was great getting back into the real world, and, uh, you know, uh, it was good. But you get out, and you're like – and then you like dive into the business world. Of course, I didn't have a pot to piss in. So, and you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars in student loans out of business school. So, you know, you whore yourself out to kind of the highest bidder. And I worked for a company called uh, BCG, you know, which was a big management consulting firm because at the time they paid the most money. Um, and there was some interesting work, but most of the, most of it was just like corporate busy work. And uh, you know, I didn't really believe in the job. It's like okay, and I, I'm like. I remember sitting eating my In-N-Out burger going, okay, I'm right back where I started. So, you know, two or three years went by and I finally, you know, said, you know what? I got to try. So I bought a, a CMR KD SF260, which is like an Italian made aerobatic plane and started restoring it and then went to a, like a formation clinic uh, where there's these, all these formation clinics around the country where mostly ex-military guys teach civilian guys how to fly formation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, which is kind of the building blocks of all tactical flying is learning to fly formation. And so, you know, I went to this one of these clinics. I met a bunch of other military guys. And I'm like, you know what? This is kind of fun. You know, back it's like a small taste of being back in a squadron, you know, doing the formation thing. So it was, a, a, you know, so I met a bunch of guys and uh, who were either ex-military or were trained with the ex-military guys that learned to fly formation. Uh, I hate to admit it, but all the guys that I met at these guys were were Navy or Marine guys. (laughs) None of them were Air Force. Um, And, but there were Navy guys who liked girls, so they were kind of in the minority. Yeah. Fair. So uh, we, um, they, you know, they're like, oh, you're a Phantom guy. You're like, you know, come with us. So, you know, I went up with a couple of these guys um, and, you know, we they're like, we started doing fly formation and they're like, okay, take a cut away. I'm like, oh, I remember this and turn in fights on. And uh, so we did like some BFM in the yaks and that changed my life. I mean, I'm like, okay, you mean I can do kind of fighter stuff, not in the military, but the people running the formation clinics we're not on board with that. They're like, oh, you guys should not be doing that. That's dangerous. Our insurance company does not prefer that. That's right. Yeah. And so they quickly started talking to us saying, listen, you know, you got to take that shit elsewhere. It's <laughs> like you can come to the formation clinics, but if you're going to do your whatever you're doing, then we don't want to know anything about it. and We don't want you to do it here. And so I'm like, all right, well, let's start our own thing. So that was the genesis of BonesFest. It really, really... Um, kind of gave me a reason to live again and nice. you know and, and and truthfully that that really transformed my business career too because i was a happier guy i uh, had something that i really love to do back into my life again mm-hmm. 
and uh, and life was good. Well, and that is how we met because yeah. Paco Carici, yeah. who was on our epi- our uh, podcast talking about the F five, yeah, uh, he was going to be in town, and I live here in San Diego, and he says, "Hey, you got to come to this Bones Fest." I'm like, "What the heck is that?" Yeah, and so it came out, and uh, I think I maybe got a backseat flight. I don't know if I did that first year, but then the next time, I brought my uh, son, who's now off to college, and hopefully planted the seed of uh, the love of aviation right. for him. He got to fly, yeah. and so yeah, it's always a good time, and you do it a couple times a year, but you do it right here at yeah. Circle Air right. Group, which is where our studio is. Right. And so tell me about Circle Air Group, because so, this place is awesome. Yeah, interesting story. It's like, again, it's like we started doing Bones Fest, um, and this is at Gillespie Field in San Diego. It's kind of the eastern side of San Diego. Near El Cajon. Yeah, near El Cajon. And, and you know, Gillespie Airport was somewhat in the hood. You know, this was not a really a nice part of San Diego, you know, 20 years ago. It's now gentrified and it's now a nice area. But at the yeah. time, it was kind of the hood. And But yet, you know, when we did Bones Fest, you know, we, we went, we burn a lot of 100 low-lead gas for all these jacks showing up to fly. We'd have 50 airplanes show up. And, you know, you go through like 10,000 gallons of gas. And, you know, none of the there – was, there was two people who sold gas on the field. And um, – and they had like kind of this oligopoly where they colluded on pricing and they kept fuel pricing on Gillespie like a dollar a gallon higher than the surrounding airports, which pissed me off to no end. <laughs> of course. And, and so, you know, back in the early days of Bones Fest, um, I bought a fuel truck and I would drive it down to like Brownfield or one of the other airports, <laughs> fill it up with gas, sneak it back onto the airport. And we, you know, stopped buying gas from the airport uh, just because we didn't want to collaborate with the, you know, the oligopolists. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and I had a hangar on the other side of the airport where I was, you know, rebuilding my planes and such, you know. And one day I see all the airplanes from this this place was called Jet Air before I bought it. All the airplanes start to leave, and I'm like, "What's going on?" Well, it turns out that the guy who owned it, uh, he owned a, a kind of a med tech company in town that got in trouble, and they filed for bankruptcy. And just through some connections, I found out who the attorney was, and ended up cutting a deal where, like, the bankrupt, you know, FEOs are not. Um, really easy to buy because generally every swing and dick fighter guy wants to own an FBO. He wants to own the gas station or the liquor store, right? You know, <laughs> and so uh, usually they trade for more money than they're worth. Um, but I was lucky in that you know through the bankruptcy, you know when I called, the, they're like, "Listen, we want someone who will write a check and not look under the covers and just buy it and get it off our hair." So we worked a deal out and uh, pulled the money together, bought Circle Air. And, you know, kind of when I bought it, I thought one of two things. It's like I wanted to really make uh, Gillespie a great place for general aviation because, again, it was like the gas prices were so high before is that, you know, everybody went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, they never did events here at this airfield because of the shitty environment and the prices and everything else. Even though it's a great airport with three runways and it's really a great location next to really great airspace, it just was not living up to its potential because of the idiots who were, uh, you know, running the FBOs here. So when I had a chance to buy the FBO, um, it was kind of a transformational thing for this airport, really, because, you know, we instantly lowered the price of fuel by $2 a gallon, nice. you know, cut it in half, basically, which, you know, changed everything overnight. Then you got people flying in here to buy gas as opposed to going elsewhere. And then we, you know, decided what do we, you know, getting back to the common denominator of our discussion today, it's like, you know, I truly... uh you know, live for being in the camaraderie and everything that was in the fighter squadron. And, and I, you know, I talked about it wasn't so much the machines, but it was the people. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm like, how do we kind of create that ethos 
in the business world and get everyone to pull together like they're going to war and, you know, care about the mission. Um, and, and so, you know, when we built Circulaire, we kind of tried to bring the kind of the squadron mentality into the building, you know, and we, you know, we have all the pictures of all, and, and you see most of the pictures in the in the, in the FBO here are of the, of the dudes, you know, that yeah. we flew with. Yeah. Um, not so much of, you know, there's lots of airplane pictures, but it's really meant to say, you know, here's the memories of, you know, the guys and the capture the camaraderie and, and you see of like Robin Olds, who was my hero and stuff like that, you know? Um, and then, you know, and, and the same deal with the business here, it's, it's, it's like, um, we tried to make the employees part of the mission. So, you know, they, uh, they're all kind of employee owners. They have a profit share in the business. And so, you know, if, if the, if the FEO does well, then they get a, a chunk of the stuff. And so consequently, it's like the business has done amazingly well um, by implementing some of the kind of the basics that, you know, a good fighter squadron would do. So we've kind of taken those lessons from the military, translate, translated them over into the civilian world with a good dose of, you know, um, you know, you know, business common sense. And and this place is doing, you know, five times the revenue that it was when I bought it. Um, and, you know, Circular. So it, it does a few things. One, it's like for the people that are not familiar with an FBO. I was going uh, to ask you to explain. Please, yeah, it, thank you. Yeah, FBO means fixed space operator. And so yep. what that is is that typically FBOs are the places where people with airplanes, they fly into and they buy gas. And then you rent hangar space to keep airplanes. And then the more comprehensive FBOs, like us, we have a maintenance shop. So we have a big FAA Part 145 repair station where we primarily work on corporate airplanes. Um, and truthfully, that was one of the big reasons I bought this place is because there was a really good group of mechanics. And based on my, you know, short time as a maintenance liaison officer in the Air Force, I was able to convince the FAA to give me an AMP license, you know, which was total bullshit, but it worked. <laughs> and Hopefully so, they're not watching. <laughs> yeah. So I got my AMP, and um, so kind of a, I'm a licensed aircraft mechanic, and I really... Uh, f- you know, kind of thought that the jewel of Circle Air was the mechanics that were here because those they were really experienced, good guys, and they were really underutilized. So uh, that was one of the the gems. So Circle Air, if you really look, what we do is like we're like the gas station for airplanes, and then we maintain them, we detail them, we rent hangar space, we, we do all that mojo, and it's about half and half, half maintenance and half gas station. Nice. All right. And so, again, right, we, I've walked around the facility here. It's amazing. You've got these really cool pictures. Yeah. Like you said, people putting on G-suits or right. walking to the jets. It's not just the airplanes and yeah. the missiles. You also got, uh, I don't know what you call it down there. I would say like an officer's club type of thing. Right, yeah. The bar. Right. Right on the corner. Yeah. Uh, and then every twice a year. Lunchroom. Lunchroom, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, well, after we're fl- done flying. Yeah, yeah. And then every two year or every, twice a year, I should say, you have the Bones Fest where yeah. people show up from all over, right? Right. So Paco flies in in his yak. Uh, Blue flies in from, I think he's over in what, Phoenix or someplace? Tucson. Well, and a, then, blue, uh, a blue, uh, blue passed away. So unfortunately, oh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Really? Yeah. You ran into a mountain. Uh, you oh, know, so it I was did not it know that. good, yeah. Oh, gosh. So I'm sorry. Yeah. Dang. I yeah. should have done yeah. better homework before. Yeah, right. You mentioned him earlier. I, I know just it's like wow. because he's one of the guys, one of the Dang. one of the one of the few guys I kept up from the F four days. It was like kind of a tragic story. It's oh, like, yeah. and Blue was a guy who he was a Southwest guy. Um, you know, ended up with several thousand Viper hours, but yet uh, was one of these guys uh, that loved everything aviation. Yeah. Was, you know, and and flew. He raced at Reno, you know, came to Bones Fest twice a year, and he was just such a giving, you know, generous guy. And so he, 
It was a really sad story. He was in, he flew to Camarillo to help one of the guys who comes to Bones Fest, you know, to give him some kind of one-on-one instruction on a Tucano that the guy had bought. So they were flying all day long, you know, doing formation training and other stuff. Uh, and he just kind of volunteered, you know, to help the guy out. So he flew from Phoenix to uh, Camarillo, flew all day with this guy, um, obviously, you know, exhausted. Right. Gets in his airplane uh, to fly back to Phoenix, puts the autopilot on, falls asleep right into the mountain. So, uh, you know, it's like throw a nickel in the grass, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is what they yeah. say. Well, dang it, I didn't want to end on that yeah, note, so, right, yeah. so instead, yeah. and I feel like a schmuck for not knowing that, yeah, but I guess no worries. I, uh, but I want to talk about some other aircraft you have here at Circle Air Group, right. which remind me of your military days. Yep. Uh, you've got some F-5s. Yeah. How? Well, <laughs> same deal. It's like, you know, trying to relive, you know, back in the day, um, mm-hmm. you know, always kind of looking around. And what happened is that the Canadians, okay, first of all, any kind of late generation uh, or current currentish generation fighter that was US made uh, you can't really go by them because we you can but you have to get state department approval right. any plane that was sold with what they call FMS foreign military sales like if, if the air force sold that 16s to Norway and now or Norway wants to get rid of them you can go buy them but in order to bring them into the US you have to get if it was an FMS airplane you have to get state department approval so and the F the F5 falls into that category F5 T38 uh, so all these F5s around the globe that everybody flew if, uh, you know, you went to buy, like, say, F-5s from Jordan uh, when they got rid of them, you would have to get State Department approval to reimport them to the U.S. And the State Department doesn't do that unless really you are you have a, a military contract or you have some rationale to import the airplanes. Okay. Of course, the big loophole to this whole equation is that if it's not a FMS airplane, if it's a, uh, you know, like a, a MiG or a Sukhoi, or any plane that was not made in the U.S., mm-hmm. all, game, all bets are off. You can bring all those in you want. You know, so you can go to Russia, buy fighter jets. You have to go through the ATF if they have weapon system and demill them, but you can bring them in, no problem. Um, and, and, and what it turns out is that Canada was one of the countries that manufactured the F-5 under contract from Northrop. So the, the, the F-5s that were in Canada were made by Canadair, and so they're certificated as a Canadair CF-5 and not a Northrop F-5. So you can just drive them right across the border. So that was the big loophole where, um, you know, I read about this group of F-5s that were coming in, and they were pretty amazing airplanes because the Canadians had just updated them with Hornet cockpits. So, because, you know, the Canadians use the F-5 as a transition to the Hornet. So they had uh, spent all this money in the early 90s to put a first-generation Hornet cockpit in them and then decided it was too much money and got rid of them. So uh, there was a bunch of these two-seat CF-5s that got imported into the U.S. by a group of guys, and they all kind of, you know, ended up getting at each, you know, getting after each other, suing each other. And I was kind of watching all this happen for years. I'm like, okay, I'd love to have one of those airplanes. But these guys, you know, all got into litigation, and and finally they all ran out of money, and the airplanes kind of sat for ten years and you know didn't fly. And so I bought two of them from kind of a crook down in Florida, and uh, you know um, who ended up suing me and oh, you know because he was it was again just trying to you know deal with the. 
a lot of the you know shysters in the industry. But you know that that all ended up working out. And I got my first two FIs. But then from that experience. The real thing that was uh, the transitional thing for me is I ended up meeting um, these guys at Tactical Air Support. So Tactical Air Support is a government contractor company, um, ran by a guy named uh, R.C. Thompson, Dog Thompson. Mm -hmm. You know Dog? I do. Yeah. Uh, And Dog uh, and I met... I don't know, 10 years ago or so. His his dad lives in San Diego. So okay. he would come into San Diego and he knew me from the fact that I bought, Tech Air also bought some of these Canadian F5s. Okay. And so um, somehow we got connected uh, and we became friends and we started collaborating on the whole F5 thing as, as Tech Air was building their business. So Tech Air ended up buying a bunch of E model F5s that were actually FMS planes from Jordan, but they're a legitimate. Operator, so right. they got State Department approval to bring him in, <clears throat> and I uh, then you know when I first bought my FIs, I'm like, okay, this is purely to go joyride, but then you know, Dog convinced me that uh, you know, hey, we can make money with these airplanes, so I, I you know cl- been collaborating with Tactical Air Support, and so we build them up here, and then we lease them to them, and they fly them on contract with the various branches of the military. So it, it kind of turned into, you know, what turned into is like kind of like a boondoggle uh, into, um, I wouldn't say a moneymaker, but at least a washing machine for a tax loss. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can justify, uh, you know, the money you're spending by having some fun with it. Yeah. Know, even if, okay. Well, you, you say, uh, I forget the word suddenly you just used, but um, you've got one out there that I've been watching you rebuild for a while now that I've known you a couple of years. Yeah. It's got the black and uh, yeah, I think digi silver. camo, yeah. Yeah. D- that would make Chip Foose, uh, who does cars to right. a T, I think, weep because that thing is gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, every nut and bolt and fastener, yeah. everything about that airplane that is clearly crazy. is like you know not a rational uh, endeavor right there. <laughs> that's that's one of these um, the most beautiful airplane on oh, earth. Really, yeah. it really is a spectacular airplane, and it's just about to fly. But it's the story with that one. The reason it hasn't flown yet is that um, Tech Air and myself we did this collaboration with Garmin. Uh, where we retrofitted their G3000 uh, system that was like in all the a lot of the corporate airplanes to go in the F5. And Tech Air kind of adopted the G3000 as their sole platform. And, um, and now the Navy has uh, contracted with Tactical Air Support to put that, you know, that cockpit in all their aggressor F5s. So Tech Air has turned into, um, you know, that's turned into a really interesting opportunity. Yeah. And that Digicamo one is kind of my version of that G3000. And so we're just kind of debugging the software because it's all glass panels, you know. Uh, but it's it's, an, it's it, going to be an amazing it little It does airplane. look incredible already. So, yeah. yeah, I'll be interested to see that fly. How many do you have that are flying? I have three flying right now. Okay. Uh, the Digicamo one is about ready to fly. Okay. Um, and then you saw there's the, the number five is in avionics right now. Well, and you've got a bunch of hulks here yeah. at, at Gillespie. I ended up with 19 uh, F5s um, in pieces, but probably have parts to build 12 or so. Okay. Um, that's the that's the the goal is to get kind of 12 airborne and then put them on contract and uh, you know make money with it. <laughs> Or at least justify your expenses. That's right. <laughs> and they're fun airplanes. I mean, really, oh, if yeah. you look at that, the F5 is such, I mean, I always thought, 
It's one of the most beautiful, a T-38 or F-5, one of the most beautiful planes with the area real fuselage, yes. you know, kind of curvy and pointed nose. I mean, it's, just, it's a beautiful plane, and it's got so much technology, and, and you, you, you start working on that airplane, you're thinking, this plane was designed by dudes with slide rules in the 50s. That's it right. blows your mind. It I does. mean, it's like it's got these, like, magnesium skins, and the technology was is really super advanced yeah. and... Uh, uh, it, it is a really a piece of jewelry. It is. And I, I agree with you on the looks. When my brothers and I were kids, we would build plastic models. We also built remote control models. Yeah. But I do remember an F-5 that we hung from the ceiling with fishing yeah. line. Yeah. And we would just sit and look at that thing. Of course, we had an F-14 right with it. Yeah. And I think the F-14 I made was supposed to have swing wings, but I yeah. glued it too much, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And, uh, but we loved the F-5. Yeah. yeah. Everybody does. It yeah. is, it, I mean, uh, it's such a beautiful airplane. And it's, again, the, the beautiful thing about it is that it does fly like like a frontline fighter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 99, you know, the people that, you know, the, the great part about owning these airplanes is that for me and for some of my friends who have been checked out, they are able to give their spouses or significant others, you know, a ride wow. in the airplane, which is, you know, I have all these guys who have, you know, been 20 years in the military and their wives have fallen, followed them around and, you know, uh, and never had the opportunity to really see what is it you do. And, you know, it's really been an amazing thing for me to give those guys the opportunities to share that with, you yeah. know, their significant other, uh, which is like, you know, flying an F-5, you know, from the significant other standpoint is identical to flying in an F-18. And it's got the second engine, which is nice, right? Second the engine. Spare engine. It's easy yeah. to fly. Yeah, yeah. And Safe. It's, it's yeah, uh, very reliable. Uh, it just lands fast. Yeah. yeah. Well. And it takes a huffer, which sucks. Oh, that does. Yeah. Oh, too bad. All right. All right, Bones, you've been a good sport. Thanks. I'm just about done. I've got a couple listener questions. These sure. are folks that support the show, so right. uh, they get to ask questions. I tell them I'm going to meet someone like you. Uh, Anthony Lombardo wants to know how much red tape is there in procuring and importing fighter-type aircraft. You just talked about that. Yeah, so the ones bit. you got uh, were relatively easy, all right. things considered. Yeah, I mean, there there's still some hoops you have to jump through, like uh, – you have to file this thing called the ATF Form 6, okay. which basically it's funny because it says, you know, importation of a weapon, you know. And so the ATF views this as like, you know, you're importing. It's the same form you, you fill if you're importing a pistol from Germany, you know. So, <laughs> pistol with wings. Yeah, pistol with wings. So, uh, but as long as it's not an FMS plane, it's pretty simple to import. And then, of course, then you all the paperwork and documentation to get registered with the FAA is another story. Yeah. And the certification uh, can also be difficult because you have to, you know, get in a maintenance program and you have to, you know, show the FAA that you can maintain it and that you have the capability. And especially like the FAA has categories of evil, they call them, you know, like the the categories of airplanes Mm -hmm. and they have the experimental jets are, you know, A, the FAA really doesn't care for experimental jets at all. Um, And they also have the the categories of uh, jets. And like I believe the F-5 is a category nine out of nine categories. It's the evilest of evil. It's like the AR-15 of airplanes because <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's swept wing, afterburning, supersonic. Ejection seat? Ejection seats and two two people. And that is the worst of the worst as far as the FAA <laughs> is concerned, you know. So there are some extra hoops you have to jump uh-huh. through. And then, too, same thing. It's like not everyone can go fly in a Category 9 experimental jet. You have to um, – so you have to get the plane certified with the FAA, but you also have to get what they call a type rating, which is like for most big airplanes, you have to get a specific 
check ride from a certified examiner, and all experimental jets are in that category. Um, so as a pilot, you have to get a type rating. But in order to get a type rating in a, a swept wing fighter, you have to have a minimum of 500 hours in a tactical type airplane, you know, if you're a civilian guy, or you have to be ex-military. So if you're ex-military, you can go do it. But if you're a civilian guy, you have to have 500 hours which is, for a civilian, a lot that of is. time. That's expensive. Especially in a, a tactical jet, like an L-39 or mm-hmm. some other like non-swept wing, non-supersonic, non-afterburning airplane. So, you know, uh, you know, we're blessed to have the government that, you know, the taxpayers paid for our training. But if you're a civilian guy and you want to fly an F-5, um, it's a tall, uh, like you it. know, tall step to be able to get up onto that. But there's... I have several buddies right now that are chipping away at the hours. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you can always fly around in the F-5 with an instructor in the back oh, okay. uh, as a civilian. So yeah. if you're a rich guy and you want to fly the F-5, um, there's ways to do it. But if you want to fly it solo, uh, then you've got to have 500 hours <laughs> in a tactical airplane. So right. anyway, that was a... No, that was good. It's good. All right. So Jevin wants to know, back to your NJEP, if NATO gets into a shooting war, does a graduate of the Euro-NATO <laughs> Joint Jet Pilot Training Program have yeah. additional responsibilities compared to those who have not gone through the program? Uh, no. All right. I, I, I don't <laughs> think so. You mean a shooting war between... Like uh, Germany and the U.S.? You're talking about oh, like, uh, well, if, if NATO gets into a shooting war, yeah, he doesn't specify <laughs> if it's with each other. Let's say if NATO gets involved with, with what's Ukraine. going on in Ukraine. Uh, no, I mean, again, it's like, you know, you, you, when you graduate from any one of the pilot training programs right. as a U.S. pilot, it's exactly the same. Sure. I mean, nobody knows the difference. You get your wings, you go into a squadron, and, you know, just everybody laughs at the NJEP guys because they didn't have to work as hard, you know? <laughs> but it's like people asking, when you get to flight school, does it matter if you're a ROTC or Air Force Academy? Yeah, you know, it doesn't it matter. It depends on what you can do, not yeah. where you're from. Yeah. All right. Uh, Nils Hansen, I love this one, grew up with the F-4D at his local Air National Guard base in the 80s. Yeah. Totally captured his soul like no other fast, yeah. no other jet, he says. Uh, fast forward to 2016, he makes the trip to Holloman for the F-4's final flight in yeah. U.S. service. Uh, over 500 F-4 legends, maintainers, operators, Vietnam infantrymen even, uh, and other fans attended. Uh, he wants to know if the Phantom has a similar hold on you as it does for so many others. I think that's pretty obvious, uh, you know, given our talk today. Yeah. I mean, I love the Phantom. Uh, I miss that event. I wish I could have been there. Uh, too bad. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the Phantom, I think everybody who flew the Phantom developed this, like, you know, kinship with that airframe. It was just such a... You know, awesome, yeah. awesome piece of machinery. So then, on that note, our final question, which I love this one too, is by Gundog four three one four. And in light of what you were talking about with your F fives, although not so much for bringing the aircraft back in, sounds like some Turkish F four, and he calls them Terminators. I guess that's <laughs> yeah. a particular one. Might be on the market soon if the price is right. Yeah. Would you consider buying a couple? But before you even answer that, <laughs> I thought I remember seeing an ad for an F four somewhere locally yeah. that was for sale. Right. I, I mean, truthfully, no. I mean, here's <laughs> the deal. Be way more expensive. The deal is that um, okay, the F five is right on the bleeding edge of you know rich guy rationality, right? It's okay. a v- expensive plane. It burns 500 gallons an hour of jet fuel to fly it, and jet fuel right now, okay. I own the gas station, right? So jet fuel costs me four bucks a gallon. Every swing and you know other guy is paying eight bucks a gallon. So if you're talking about five hundred gallons an hour at you know six, seven, eight dollars a gallon, it's a lot of money for the F uh, five. Mm-hmm. The F four 
3,000 gallons an hour. So you take it, it's times, you know, what, times six, six times the fuel burn. Um, it's 20 for, grand an hour just in fuel, basically. For roughly the same performance. You know, the <laughs> F5 and the T-38 were made to simulate the F4. That was the mission of that airplane. And and truthfully, you know, it was another point we didn't talk about. What When I went to the, the F4 RTU, you got no time to learn to land the airplane because it lands exactly like a T-38. Huh. They fly within a couple knots of each other on speeds, and they handle the same. Uh, they really do. I mean, you know, they, they fly almost identical uh, other than, you know, the, the F-4 is obviously way faster right. uh, on the top end. But it's just the handling and the pattern and the systems and everything else are very, very similar. But come on, Bones. Hold on. Yeah. I got to interrupt. A phantom showing up in the Nellis range yeah. today or in the Fallon range training yeah. complex is going to be pretty cool. We see a lot of F5s. You I'd have to be like phantoms. Elon Musk to do that, you know. <laughs> and, and truthfully, if I was, you know, that kind of money, I'd buy an F16. Yeah. That's probably next on the to- you know, the docket. It's like, you know. There's a company in Arizona that's starting to do it, I, I guess. But the problem with the F16s and all the newer fighters is that they're, they are, they're a software machine. Yeah. And, you know. Well, I can pull open the cowlings on the engine and turn on the fuel controller with the screwdriver. I can't really open up the computer and start messing with the code. And some of that SMS stuff in there is yes. got old leftover things in the closets. It, it just becomes, again, the, the software part of the newer fighters makes them incredibly difficult if you want to own them as a civilian, but not impossible. So well, keep, and keep you and I, alive. I think one of our earlier conversations when we first met was about this very thing because yeah. I was talking to a company that's trying to bring some Australian F-18s back and apparently he's going to. Yeah. And I had it in my mind I was going to be like that guy in North Carolina who owns a Harrier and be the first one yeah. to own a Hornet. Right. So that dream has uh, faded yeah. a little bit, shall I say, but yeah. it's still fun to think about. Well, I mean, <laughs> and truthfully, you know, when it comes down to it, it's like, you know, really the things that differentiate the newer fighters from like the F-5 are the weapon systems, right? And if you, you know, if you're not going to war uh, as a you know as a civilian like for joyride the f5 gives you 99 percent of the experience of a frontline fighter but uh, you know uh but at you know a fraction of the cost yeah. so it's as it's as close truthfully as you really need to get it gives you really and 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 being a fighter guy and i've flown in a lot of these and and you know with the hornet guys i flew with it's like the same deal and when I've been up with a couple of my buddies flying three ship in the F5s, it's like you got to pinch yourself. You're like, yeah. how am I here? You know, we're flying up in Wyoming and around the mountains in a three ship with a couple of my buddies, you know, both of them Hornet guys. And, um, we, you know, flying low level through the mountains as a civilian, you know. Uh, All right, Bones. So when you're yeah. eating your In-N-Out burger today, right, yeah. <laughs> what what's going through your mind? What's the future for you and Circle Air Group and your F5s? I mean, what's what's next? Um, you know, it, it's like we're we're trying to again. This is you know, I I have another business which is kind of my day job. This business is kind of um, you know was a good opportunity, but it's not really my. It's like your fling. Yeah, it's like my fling, <laughs> uh, but I love it, and yeah. so it's one of these things where you know uh, you continually try to make it uh, um, uh, you know a better run business and more and expand. And we're we're building more hangars on the other side of the airport to kind of expand the operation. But it's mostly you know for me it's to. Um, you know, kind of secure the uh, the careers for the people that are here, right? It's mm-hmm. like this is about the people that work here. Um, we, you know, we want to build the business and make it more profitable so that these guys have a good long-term thing. It's not so much for me. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, 
I, this is a business I would never sell because I'm an airplane junkie, and mm-hmm. it's like like you said, this is the washing machine. Scratching so rich. It's great. So yeah, I mean, but um, you know, hopefully we keep making F5s, and you know, maybe someday get F16s or something like that. And uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it's like uh, it's all good. Just one final question I have to ask yeah, before you right. go. It's our tradition. Yeah. Uh, D. Conger, but call sign Bones. Right. So h- how did someone come up with that? So I show up at Clark, and my squadron was you know kind of famous for dice games. Okay. And, uh, of course, being a math guy, you're like, okay, I'm going to crush this because I am smarter <laughs> than anybody else. But, of course, you know, fighter pilot dice games, the rules change every role, and, you know, you don't really know the rules when you walk in. Then there's alcohol. Then there's alcohol. I'm, I'm told. Yeah, I'm told. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, so my, my first time really in the squadron playing dice with all the Vietnam guys, I lost like $2,000, uh, <laughs> which, you know, at the time was like a year's worth of free money, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like 2000 bucks as a lieutenant Dang. was a lot of money. And, you know, and so everyone in the squadron was like, come on, roll the bones, roll the bones. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I ob- obliged them and lost all my money and, you know, hence the name <laughs> stuck, you know, because I was such an, an amazingly shitty dice player. I see. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you made up for it right. with everything yeah. else you've done, with, right. whether it was flying the F-4 or going to NGEP and training there and then yeah. being successful on the outside. Yeah. Owning an FBO and starting your own fleet of F-5s, that's, a, that's quite a legacy, Buzz. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate awesome. it. Yeah. Well, yep. Appreciate your time on the show yep. today. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, bud. Okay. We'll see you. All right. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation team videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.